It is early October 1963 in Mexico City. We are in the shady tree-lined neighborhood of Roma Norte. In a dark, cool house on Calle Chihuahua, two women sit at a kitchen table. Veiled by whirling rivers of blue cigarette smoke, they drink coffee. At this moment, they are sitting in a rare silence, perhaps weighing ideas. The images they have conjured still hang in the air around them. Tomorrow, one of these women, Remedios Vero, will be dead, at 54, from a heart attack. Over a decade later, Leonora Carrington will write what surely must be the most lively testament to female friendship, to aging, and to the character of women, the hearing trumpet. And welcome to the Amusium. Today's broadcast is from the series She Speaks Volumes, a primer for over a millennia of often neglected writing by women philosophers, artists, scientists, and thinkers, a vindication of the works of women, so to speak. This is season two of She Speaks Volumes. The first two episodes are about two different books by the surrealist Leonora Carrington, who, in addition to being a painter and a sculptor, was also a prolific writer. In the last episode we covered down below, Carrington's subjective autobiographical account of being involuntarily committed. In this episode, we are exploring The Hearing Trumpet, being read by my mother, Verna Sorrentino. If you don't know who Leonora Carrington is, you can't see me, but I am jumping up and down with glee for being the one to introduce you to her. And if you are already familiar, I hope you discover something new in these episodes or rediscover something that turns you on. Leonora Carrington was born in Lancashire, England, in 1917 into a very wealthy family. Carrington abandoned her privileged life and ran off with another artist to live in France, where she hung out with the Surrealists. I cover more of Carrington's biography in the Down Below episode, and a link is in the show notes. The Hearing Trumpet is the bomb. I love this story. If you have not read it yet, suggest it to your book club or just read it on your own. It is everything a story should be. And 40 years before the Da Vinci Code, Carrington posited a similar woman goddess as vessel holy grail scenario. But it's a much more interesting story. The Hearing Trumpet is set in a Mexican old folks home, which actually houses a secret society. It involves murder, apocalyptic events, ancient rituals, and mythic creatures. Refreshingly, the hearing trumpet presents a vision of old age, which is at once more startlingly brutal and effervescently optimistic than the usual fare. The novel's protagonist is Marion Leatherby, 
an elderly woman living with her son and his family in Mexico. Here I must say that all my senses are by no means impaired by age. My sight is still excellent, although I use spectacles for reading, when I read, which I practically never do. True, rheumatics have bent my skeleton somewhat. This does not prevent me from taking a walk in clement weather and sweeping my room once a week on Thursday, a form of exercise which is both useful and edifying. Here I may add that I consider that I'm still a useful member of society and I believe still capable of being pleasant and amusing when the occasion seems fit. The fact that I have no teeth and never could wear dentures does not in any way discomfort me. I don't have to bite anybody and there are all sorts of soft edible foods easy to procure and digestible to the stomach. Mass vegetables, chocolate and bread dipped in warm water make the base of my simple diet. I never eat meat as I think it wrong to deprive animals of their life when they are so difficult to chew anyway. I am now 92 and for some 15 years I have lived with my son and his family. Our house is situated in a residential district and would be described in England as a semi-detached villa with a small garden. I don't know what they call it here, but probably some Spanish equivalent of spacious residence with park. This is untrue. The house is not spacious. It is cramped. There is nothing resembling even faintly a park. There is, however, a fine backyard which I share with my two cats, a hen, the maid and her two children, some flies and a cactus plant called Magway. The story is triggered when Marion's neighbor and friend Carmela gives her the gift of a hearing trumpet. Carmela is inspired by Carrington's friendship with surrealist artist Remedios Vero, also living in Mexico City. Like Vero, Carmela is a spirited character, defiant and challenging, with a sense of mystery and mysticism about her. Now, Carmela has given me presents several times, and they are sometimes knitted and sometimes comestible, but I never saw her so excited. When she unwrapped the hearing trumpet, I was at a loss to know whether it could be used for eating or drinking, or merely for ornament. After many complicated gestures, she finally put it to my ear, and what I always heard as a thin shriek went through my head like the bellow of an angry bull. Can you hear me, Marion? Indeed I could. It was terrifying. Can you hear me, Marion? I nodded speechlessly. This frightful noise was worse than Robert's motorcycle. This magnificent trumpet is going to change your life. Finally, I said, for goodness sake, don't shout. You make me nervous. We both sat down and sucked a violent scented lozenge which Carmela likes because it scents the breath. I am now getting used to the rather nasty taste and beginning to like them through my fondness for Carmela. We thought about all the revolutionary possibilities of the trumpet. Not only will you be able to sit and listen to beautiful music and intelligent conversation, but you will also have the privilege of being able to spy on what your whole family are saying about you. And that ought to be very amusing. Leonora Carrington and Remedios Vero originally met in Paris through the circle of surrealist artists. But it was not until they met up again in Mexico as refugees from the war 
that their friendship evolved along with the photographer Kat Horna. In 1942, Mexico welcomed European refugees, people who were being persecuted by the fascist ideologies sweeping their home countries. Many artists, writers, and thinkers made Mexico their new home during this time. Mexico, with its fusion of indigenous culture, revolutionary spirit, and Spanish colonial past, was fertile ground for surrealists. The three women all lived near each other, in the neighborhood of Colonia Roma, or in Roma Norte. Their friendship had an alchemy of its own, and it nurtured, informed, and inspired the members of this small club. These women had grown out of the traditional role of muse, and were developing their own vernacular, discovering their own shared queendom. After receiving the hearing trumpet, Marion does indeed use it to eavesdrop on her family who, it turns out, are making plans to dump her in an old folks' home. In case they lock you up in a ten-story room, said Carmela, lighting a cigar, you could take a lot of those ropes you wave and escape. I could be waiting down below with a machine gun and an automobile. A hired automobile, you know. I don't suppose it would be too expensive for an hour or two. Where would you get the machine gun? I asked intrigued at the idea of Carmela armed with such a deadly artefact. And how do they work? We never succeed in, in operating that planisphere. I must suppose the machine gun would be more complicated. Machine gun, said Carmela, as simplicity itself. You load them with a lot of bullets and press a trigger. There's no intellectual manipulation necessary, and you don't actually have to hit anything. The noise impresses people. They think you're dangerous if you have a machine gun. Carrington and Barrow's friendship informed their work, which was a distinctly feminine fusion of domesticity, magic, and conjuring images from that space in which archetypal creatures dwell, our shared cultural commons that we each see uniquely. When I say distinctly feminine, I mean something very specific. I am not an art historian or any sort of an academic, and I have no specialized knowledge. But when I look at Carrington and Barrow's art, I see characters and stories and ideas that are formed without reference to patriarchal thought. Their work does not mimic the work of men. It is not rebelling against it. It is not breaking free from it or paying homage to it. And though their work may be inspired by artists such as Hieronymus Bosch, it comes from a sensibility of their own that is wildly and independently feminine. Miracles, witches, fairy tales, grow up, darling. You may not believe in magic, but something very strange is happening at this very moment. Your head has dissolved into thin air, and I can see the rhododendrons through your stomach. It's not that you're dead or anything dramatic like that. It is simply that you are fading away, and I can't even remember your name. I remember your white flannels better than I can remember you. I remember all the things I felt about the white flannels, but whoever made them walk about has totally disappeared. So you remember me as a pink linen dress with no sleeves, and my face is confused with dozens of other faces. I have no name either. So why so much fuss about individuality? To learn more about Leonora Carrington, 
take a look at the show notes for this episode. There you will find additional biography, bibliography, and links to her work. I'm currently working on a short video, a micro-documentary about Leonora Carrington that I shot while visiting the Museo de Leonora Carrington in San Luis Potosi, Mexico. When it's finished, I'll put a link into the show notes and I'll also post a link on theamuseum.ca. Old women are almost invisible in literature, film, and television. When we do see an old woman, she is invariably a helpful old granny, a miserable or crazy spinster, or a witch. Even today, the modern old woman, who has an Instagram account to illustrate how stylish she is, how fit she is, how relevant, and that's great, it's so much better than invisibility, but there's still the specter of being useful only as long as one is looked at. As soon as a woman is neither youthfully beautiful nor ripe for bearing children, she ceases to have value. But only because we have determined a woman's value by her usefulness to others. In The Hearing Trumpet, Carrington does not shrink away from or deny the physical realities of old age. They are incorporated as part of the absurdity of existence. But this is also a coming-of-age story, in the sense that it is Marion's discovery of herself and her cronies in the daily life at Lightsome Hall, the old folks' home, and through the intuitive rituals that the old women perform in this post-apocalyptic reality that unfolds within the story. Today, for the benefit of a new member of our little society, I shall outline the basic principles of Lightsome Hall. Most of you have been here for some time and are thoroughly acquainted with our purpose. We seek to follow the inner meaning of Christianity and comprehend the original teaching of the Master. You have heard me repeating these phrases many, many times, yet do we really grasp the meaning of such a work? Work it is, and work it shall remain. Before we begin to get even a faint glimmer of truth, we must strive for many years and lose hope time and time again before the first recompense is awarded us. I noticed that he had a slightly foreign accent, which was difficult to place. Nevertheless, his nasal voice was as audible as any siren. He seemed to inspire everybody with great respect. They all chewed their food and looked at their plates with serious faces. While he spoke, I was able to examine a large oil painting on the wall facing me. The painting represented a nun with a very strange and malicious face. These apparently simple, though infinitely difficult, principles are the core of our teaching, went on Dr. Gambit. There are two little words which will ever supply the key to understanding of inner Christianity. Self-remembering, my friends, are the words which we must strive to keep present through all our daily activities. The face of the nun in the oil painting was so curiously lighted that she seemed to be winking, although that was hardly possible. She must have had one blind eye and the painter had rented her infirmity realistically. However, the idea that she was winking persisted. She was winking at me with the most disconcerting mixture of mockery and malevolence. This painting of the nun is hugely important in the book, and may be a symbol of misunderstood and maligned femininity. 
but she isn't necessarily all benevolence. This excerpt is part of a letter from Carmela to Marion. Carmela is psychically picking up on the events at Lightsome Hall and possibly on Marion's thoughts. Dear Marion, she wrote, I hardly know if you will receive this letter, even if it ever reaches you. I cannot trust that horrible Muriel to deliver it safely, and even if she does, you may be suffering too much to read letters. The two cats are well and happy. I did not arrive in time to save the red hen. Alas, she is almost sure to be eaten soon. The cats felt a little strange at first, but they soon settled down. All cats are psychic, as you know, and they felt my sympathy immediately. Apart from the nightmares I've had about you, I have been having recurrent dreams about a nun in a tower. She has the most interesting face, which is slightly deformed by a perpetual wink. I cannot imagine who she is. One of my correspondents, perhaps? I keep dreaming that I am dead and have to bury my own corpse. This is most unpleasant, as the corpse has begun to go bad, and I don't know where to put it. Last night I had the same dream, the winking nun, and then the arduous duty of interring my own corpse. I had decided to have it embalmed and sent here to my house, cash on delivery. But as soon as the funeral agency arrived here, I was so alarmed, having to face my own dead body, that I sent it back again to the funeral parlour without paying. What a relief it is that we don't have to undertake the worry and trouble of our own burials. Having read Carmela's letter over several times, I sat plunged in thought. The winking nun could be no other than Donna Rosalinda Alvarez Cruz de la Cueva. How very mysterious that Carmela should have seen her telepathically. How excited she would be when I told her about the oil painting and how the abbess occupied my thoughts. The psychic connection between Marion and Carmela is validated throughout the novel in the revelations that there is an alternate version of reality occurring beneath the surface of Lightsome Hall. Dreams, synchronicities, visions, and quests lead into rituals, chanting, performance magic, and the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. Marion, Carmela, and the other old women living at Lightsome Hall all seem to have an innate knowledge that emerges when it is needed. It is an ancient knowledge, shared by and accessible to women. A murder occurs at Lightsome Hall, and the Gambits, who run the institution, refuse to believe that it is a murder, putting it down to an accident. The old woman inmates go on a hunger strike, and they meet late in the night to plan their mutiny. You will find a scrap of paper in each biscuit with your fortune written on it, said Christabel. I suggest each one of us read out her fortune. Each person bid her biscuit in two, and we read out scraps of paper in turn. We were sitting in a circle around the pond. The order was moonwise. Veronica Adams, the Marquise, Anna Vertz, Georgina, Christabel Burns, I was the last. Although you have given up hope, you will meet true love again, read Veronica Adams. The battle is almost won. Do not dissipate yourself unnecessarily. Victory is near. I unscrewed my own scrap of paper and read out, Help! I am prisoner in the tower. There was a slight pause, and Christabel, as if to avoid further discussion, 
pulled a very small tom-tom from under her shawl and began to pat it in rhythmic beats. We began by nodding our heads in time to the drumming, then our feet. Soon we were dancing around and around the pond, waving our arms and generally behaving in a very strange manner. At the time, none of us seemed to find anything unusual about our weird dance. None of us felt tired. Even Veronica Adams, who was almost 100, pranced around as merrily as the rest. Never before had I experienced the joy of rhythmic dance, even in the days of Foxtrot in the arms of some eligible young man. We seemed inspired by some marvellous power which poured energy into our decrepit carcasses. Christabel began to chant in time to the rhythm of her drums. Belzira ha ha, Hakate come, descend on us to the sound of my drum. Inkala Igtam my bird is the mole, up goes the equator and down the north pole. Eptalum Zampulum, the power to increase, here come the north lights and a flight of wild geese. Inkala Belzizam Palam the drum, High Queen of Tartarus, hasten to come. This chant was repeated time and time again to the cloud gathered over the round pond, and we all shrieked in unison, Zampolum, Ave, Ave, Queen of all bees. Words and rhythm are vehicles for magic. There is nothing quite like being involved in the raising of power through group chanting or dancing. This is the realm of witchcraft and sorcery. Not a Harry Potter sort of witchcraft. This is real, rooted in the earth and manifested over and over and over again throughout human history, despite the fact that there are those who want to control or curtail the power of magic, the power of old women, the power of women in general. In the hearing trumpet, Carrington brings the magic of old women out of the forest, out of obscurity, and into the foreground. And it's a jolly good read. The next episode of She Speaks Volumes continues our exploration of Season 2's theme, The Season of the Witch, and explores a book titled The Witch Cult in Western Europe by anthropologist and folklorist Margaret Alice Murray. Originally published in 1921, Murray was one of the first academics to study the history of witchcraft in Europe in the context of it being a valid ideology and culture shared across the continent. While you wait patiently for this episode, please visit theamuseum.ca. You can read the posts I have written about the ideas that emerged while working on the Leonora Carrington episodes and learn about the other writers in this series and the other projects that I'm working on. Thanks for listening. Belzira, ha ha, Hakate, come. Descend on us to the sound of my drum. Inkala, Iktam, my bird, is the mole. Up goes the equator and down the north pole. Eptalum, Zampalum, the power to increase. Here come the north lights and a flight of wild geese.